from the Center for European Reform. This is the CEA podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sails. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Welcome to the latest podcast from the Centre for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond. I'm the Foreign Policy Director at the CER, and I'm here today with Luigi Scazzieri, our research fellow who has written an interesting piece for the latest CER bulletin on the strains in the transatlantic relationship at the moment. Perhaps I could start, Luigi, by asking you a bit about how you see the the position. I mean, to me, it looks as though transatlantic relations were in a pretty poor situation even before the coronavirus pandemic. We had a trade war. We had Trump's frequent attacks on his European allies for their failure to spend enough on defense. We had big differences of opinion between the US and the Europeans over the Middle East peace process and and other foreign policy issues such as Syria. And um, so we were starting from a pretty low base, weren't we? But what effects do you think we have seen from the, the pandemic on the state of the relationship? Well, thank you, Ian. Um, I think there's two distinct phenomena here, here at play. On, on the one hand, the pandemic is creating new tensions, and on the other hand, it's exacerbating old ones. So in, in terms of new tensions, I think the way um, Trump has handled uh, the pandemic has uh, been damaging to transatlantic relations. So if we think about, for example, the 2008 and 9 financial crash, the US was at the forefront of coordinating an international response, whereas this time around things have been very different. Um, it is true that the Federal Reserve has... Uh, uh, opened emergency currency swap lines with uh, with other countries, central banks, to help stabilize uh, the economic situation, allowing them to to obtain valuable U.S. dollars. But more broadly, aside from that, the U.S. government has actually shown very little interest in uh, international health uh, cooperation. So, for example, instead of coordinating with Europeans uh, in the fight against uh, coronavirus, the U.S. imposed a travel ban on on Europe without any notice or consultation. Uh, Trump uh, also reportedly tried to buy a German vaccine company to ensure that Americans would have uh, access to, to a vaccine first. The US has also uh, often insisted on calling uh, coronavirus the Wuhan virus in reference to the Chinese city in which it originated, um, creating significant tension with the Europeans. And in uh, in early May, there was an EU-led effort to uh, to pledge funds for a coronavirus vaccine, which, uh, which which was very successful, but in which the US uh, did not participate. And finally, there's also Trump's bashing of the WHO. Uh, he's accused the organization of um, essentially covering up for China. Uh, he suspended uh, US funding, and now he wants to withdraw from uh, from the organization, even though it's not quite clear if he has the, the legal authority to do so. 
But of course, this again has created new tensions with the Europeans who think that the organization is doing very important work. And aside from these new tensions um, created, by the way, in which Trump, Trump has handled the pandemic itself, I think it has also fed into free existing sources of tensions. So first of all, China. I think Trump's um, very hostile stance towards Beijing um, will, will deepen the split between the, the US and Europe on how to deal with China going ahead. So you know, Trump has accused uh, China of uh, mismanaging the outbreak, of covering up. He's claimed uh, without evidence that the coronavirus originated in a Chinese lab, and he's threatened to cut off the whole relationship with China. And it's not that Europeans disagree with the fact that China mismanaged the outbreak and that um, in general, it is probably a good idea to build uh, more more resilient supply chains, which might involve um, you know, diversifying the supply uh, away uh, away from China, or uh, protecting um, European firms from being acquired by uh, by China. So through more close scrutiny of investments, but but Europeans don't think that essentially it is advisable, as Trump seems to want to completely cut themselves off from China. And, and part of the reason, I think, is also that um, many Europeans don't, simply do not see China as a serious threat. We, we recently saw a poll by a Pew uh, Research Center together with Kerber Stiftung uh, saying that equivalent numbers of Germans wanted close relationships with the US as with China. And uh, all this, I think, means that Europe will be reluctant to back a more... Um, harder U.S. stance towards Beijing, and perhaps we're already seeing this, although you keep on um, a much closer eye than me on these matters, uh, but we might already be seeing this in relation to Hong Kong, and with Europeans perhaps being a bit softer on uh, on China's recent moves there. The two, two remaining sources of tension, which I think are being exacerbated by Trump's response, are trade and defense. So in, in terms of trade, there's a risk that Trump will want to um, escalate the trade war with Europe in order to divert the attention from his own uh, terrible record in managing the pandemic. And also, because of what I previously mentioned, this perceived need to build resilience into supply chains by onshoring production, perhaps, or by nearshoring production, uh, as well as possibly a greater use of subsidies and, and trade defence measures, to, to block foreign takeovers, I think there is a risk of all this leading to, uh, to greater trade tensions. And um, finally, defence. Um, this is not a direct consequence, but if we think of the economic consequences that lockdowns are having in terms of uh, greater public debt burdens and competing demands from sectors such as healthcare, uh, as well as uh, providing stimulus for the economy, I think it is fair to assume that defence budgets across Europe are going to be uh, cut to a significant extent. Um, and this will generate tensions with the US over the whole burden-sharing debate in NATO. Uh, of course, ironically, many countries might actually reach uh, the 2% um, GDP on, on defence uh, target as a result of their economies shrinking, but it's not really uh, going to ease tensions if they... Uh, they further cut their capabilities. And this problem can be exacerbated, of course, 
if, uh, as happened in 2008 and 9, defense cuts aren't coordinated um, and countries simply proceed to cut away capabilities uh, on, on their own. And, of course, in theory, greater defense cooperation on a European level could mitigate the impact of cuts, um, but there is a risk that um, EU defense initiatives, such as the European Defense Fund, are going to, to suffer as well, again, as a risk of competing demands. Now, we saw that in the proposal for a recovery fund put forward by the Commission, the defense fund had remained uh, quite a substantial size compared to plans to, to cut it down originally, but uh, it might be negotiated down significantly. Yeah, you make a very interesting point there. I'm going back to China. I, I wonder whether one could be a bit more optimistic about the impact that events in Hong Kong might might have. Um, I mean, while there isn't much appetite in the EU for imposing sanctions on China, it does seem as though for quite a lot of EU countries, at least, um, you know, the scales are falling from their eyes. They're realising that uh, Xi Jinping is not uh, in any sense converging with the West on values or uh, opening up of society or whatever. And, uh, you know, the, the question of China is very much um, a matter of bipartisan agreement in the in the US. So, um, you know, I, I, I wonder whether, you know, there might be a bit more more scope to find common ground with the Americans over China than uh, than one might have expected even a few months ago when um, before events in Hong Kong really kicked off. But perhaps, I mean, that leads on perhaps to to a question about um, the US political scene. I mean, obviously, this year we're in an election year. Uh, we, we may find that we have a different president after November the 3rd. I mean, do you think that if we were looking forward to a President Biden in 2021, that would make a significant difference to, to transatlantic relations? Or do you think, you know, the the mould is sort of already set by Trump and that's the way it's going to be regardless of who wins the election? Well, so many issues uh, would remain even if uh, Biden were elected. And I think an, an important point is that the US's response to the pandemic um, you know, Europeans have seen American governors fighting over medical equipment, essentially the US response being very, very ineffective. And now, uh, you know, we are also witnessing large-scale uh, protests over the uh, killing of George Floyd as a result of police violence. I think these two developments taken together, there is a real risk that they will reinforce the sense amongst many in Europe that the US is a very, very different place and that this then erodes transatlantic bonds on a societal uh, level. Uh, of course, having said that, it is true that under a Biden presidency, tensions in all the, these matters would ease very considerably. So on China, I think your, your more positive scenario of Europeans and the US converging would have a much greater chance of happening if the US actually exercises leadership rather than uh, often just not, not even trying to, to build allies or uh, to bring allies on board or trying to coerce them. Uh, on defence, you know, tensions, I think, would remain, but the whole uh, tone would, would shift very considerably and therefore 
easing them. But, but the main difference is that the mood, I think, would change simply because uh, the US would be no longer anti-European in the sense that uh, Trump's US has been. He is fundamentally averse to the European project. He thinks that the EU is a, a way to rip off America. Uh, and uh, Biden has made it very clear that, he, you know, of course, he's a committed multilateralist, but he would uh, also aim uh, to rectify much of the damage that Trump has done in terms of re-entering the, the Paris Climate Agreement and trying to rebuild the, uh, the Iran agreement, the Iran nuclear agreement, as well as, of course, maintaining the U.S.'s commitment to, to a two-state solution on the Middle East peace process. And so all this means that together, actually, I, I would feel much more positive about the prospects of the EU and the U.S. cooperating on fairly large-scale projects, such as you know, launching a, a large program of economic and, and medical assistance to help uh, countries uh, that are less prepared encountering the pandemic and making sure that the vaccine is accessible to, to everyone, as well as uh, collaborating to, to address the climate emergency and, um, and re-establishing a more, more common uh, foreign policy approach in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's an interesting question about whether Biden can turn around public opinion. And I mean, what you said about the, the unrest, the current unrest in the, the US, uh, there's no question that that is having an impact on European public opinion. You know, you saw quite significant demonstrations in cities like Berlin and in London as well, for that matter, um, protesting against police brutality in the in the US. Um, you know, that that perception of a rather dysfunctional country is something which Biden, I think, would have to work hard to, to overcome. Um, yeah, not easy, but uh, but perhaps doable. I mean, Obama managed to turn around the opinions that had grown up in the era of George W. Bush pretty, pretty readily. But let's look at it from the other point of view. Um, if Trump wins a second term, and that's perfectly possible. Uh, how do you think Europe is going to respond to that? Uh, what are the what are the long term impacts on the relationship going to be if we have another four years of Trump? Well, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to note that um, in, in what would be his final term, I think there would be very few reasons for Trump to pursue a restrained approach. And that we would expect to see a doubling down on all the the elements which are most destructive of his uh, of his worldview, of his America First worldview, especially with uh, him having a very very strong grip on the Republican Party and all the uh, the more moderate voices uh, completely sidelined or, or gone, um, and then not to also mention a world uh, that is far more brittle than the the one which Trump faced in 2017. So I think it would be extremely damaging for for world order. Now in terms of what what you know what this would mean for transatlantic relations i think there's two possible scenarios one of them is uh, is that europe would essentially uh, be united the european leaders would conclude that the us is no longer a reliable partner and they would um, act on the on the consequences of that trying to build a more assertive and uh, an autonomous europe including by building up um, europeans uh, europe's defense capacity but I, I, that, that might not be the case. Uh, and indeed, I think Europe might not behave as a coherent entity. It, 
Member states might be unwilling to agree to deeper cooperation for a range of reasons, especially if they're torn apart by disagreements on, you know, financing the economic uh, recovery. Populists might still uh, be very strong in countries like Italy. Disagreements over the rule of law are still going to be strong. And, you know, climate change might also be uh, a new uh, and, and quite... Uh, destructive source of, of tension. And in that case, what might happen is that some states turn to, uh, to Beijing in search of economic uh, opportunity, uh, blocking uh, a more common European vision. And uh, others uh, remain latched onto the US uh, for fear of Russia, in the case of some, or perhaps uh, for fear of instability in the Middle East. Sometimes the two can combine, as, uh, as we can see in, in Libya and Syria. But what ultimately brings the two scenarios together, that of a united European response versus a disunited Europe, is I think that both entail uh, permanent damage. Uh, a second Trump term would naturally entail permanent damage to the transatlantic relationship. And I think that the only uh, people who would benefit from that would be uh, the authoritarian forces of, uh, of the world, whether they are in Russia or in China. Well, that's... Um a gloomy but I think very important note on which to end. Uh, thank you very much, Luigi. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.